If you have a Bible with you tonight, I want to invite you to open it with me to a few places, three places in fact. John chapter 5. And then find Luke 24. So John 5 and Luke 24. And then third passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So John 5, Luke 24. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll read these as we make our way through our study tonight. But tonight, uh, I want to kick off a, a new series for us on Wednesday nights. It'll take us uh, at least through September. It may stretch a little bit further depending on uh, how in-depth we get into it. And uh, it, it's... Honestly tonight, it's something that I'm very passionate about, something that I really enjoy, something that encourages me in my own personal walk and devotion uh, before the Lord as I'm reading Scripture and studying it. Uh, but tonight, I want us to kick off a study uh, that I've simply titled, Looking for Christ, Looking for Christ, and specifically in the Old Testament, uh, Looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. And tonight, I just want to kind of lay a simple foundation for us, uh, if there is such a thing. No foundation is simple. Foundations are incredibly important. Uh, if you get the foundation wrong, everything else is uh, out of kilter. So uh, no such thing as a simple foundation, uh, but simple in, in the aspect that we're, we're not going to get too deep into the weeds tonight. We'll save that for the, the weeks to come uh, as we explore how we go about searching for Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, because I, I do think there's a healthy way to do it, uh, and I do think there's an unhealthy way to do it. Uh, and so I want us to be healthy in our approach of looking in Scripture and handling the Scriptures. And uh, so we'll, we'll talk about what it looks like to do that in the Old Testament in some specific ways. Uh, but tonight, I just want to kind of lay the, the foundation for the study of why we should be looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. Why Christ should be our focus, even... Uh, as we turn to the Old Testament scriptures. And tonight I want us to start in John 5. John chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 39, but I'm going to broaden out uh, the, the passage there. I want to read a little bit more just to kind of uh, give us the context. We'll start in verse 36. So this is Jesus uh, in conversation, uh, and really I think we could say in conflict, uh, even in argument uh, with his religious opponents. Um, question has come up about the authority that Jesus possesses. We've seen that in our study of Mark's gospel. It's a theme uh, that John picks up as well in his gospel. Uh, but on this particular occasion, uh, it's kind of coming to um, uh, a, a pinnacle. Uh, they're really pressing in on Jesus, on how you can do these things and say these things and, and teach these things. Uh, and as they're questioning the authority of Jesus, Jesus is pushing back on them. And in essence, what he's about to tell them, and we're going to see, is you've missed it entirely. You have misinterpreted what the scriptures, and in this context, it's clear that Jesus is talking about the Old Testament, because the New Testament has not yet been written. 
right? So he's not talking about the Gospel of John uh, because John is writing that. Uh, so he's clearly speaking of the Old Testament. He's speaking of uh, the, the law, if you will, the prophets, the writings, the histories, and how they have misunderstood uh, what the purpose of those were. So follow along. I'm going to start reading in John 5, verse 36. This is the testimony, or the words of Jesus as he speaks about his testimony. He said, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have uh, his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Now listen to verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. We'll stop right there, but verse 39 is really what I want us to, to think about for just a moment as we begin thinking about searching the Scriptures uh, and looking for Christ in the Old Testament. So one of the charges that Jesus brings against the uh, religious opponents uh, that he faces so often in the Gospels is their improper interpretation of the Old Testament. He tells them, you search the scriptures, and that's a good thing. You read your Bibles, that's an incredibly good thing. And, and uh, the uh, opponents that Jesus faced, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, uh, the, the priests that were operating in that day, they knew the scriptures incredibly well. But Jesus tells them there in verse 39, you've missed what they're all about. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And then he adds, but they, the scriptures, are what bear witness about me. Let me just give you a, a very uh, succinct statement on what Jesus is saying here. You search the scriptures, namely the law of God, and think that in keeping the law you have eternal life. But what you fail to recognize is the scriptures, even the law of God, is about me. That's where eternal life is found. Eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. To have eternal life is to have Christ. To not be in Christ is to not have eternal life. So in order to have eternal life, you must have Christ. He is the source of it. Our union with him is where we come to obtain it and to enjoy it and to experience it. And Jesus in that verse he says, it's the scriptures that bear witness, that tell about me as the source of eternal life. So uh, we start with this simple truth, this, this simple uh, proposition. We need to look for Christ in the Old Testament in order to understand the Old Testament correctly. Jesus is clear in what he says here. There is an improper way to read the Old Testament. There is an improper way to read the Bible. Let me say that again. There is an improper way to read the Bible. It's good to read the Bible, 
But it's not a good thing to read the Bible wrong. It's kind of like the old saying. Uh, we're familiar with it. Uh, practice makes perfect. You've, you've heard that, right? Probably heard that from your coach when you were playing sports. Uh, that's not worth anything. Practice does not make perfect. You want me to tell you what practice makes? Habit. It does you no good if you have a fundamentally flawed baseball swing to go outside and practice that fundamentally flawed baseball swing a hundred times a day. All you're doing is ingraining in your muscle memory and in your mind a flawed baseball swing. Perfect practice makes perfect, yes. So we've, we've got to do it right. Bible reading is incredibly important, but we've got to make sure we're reading our Bibles the right way. Jesus was charging uh, his opponents here in John 5 that they were not doing that. They had gotten it wrong. And so we need to search for Christ in the Old Testament because that is the proper way which we should understand the Old Testament. And my hope is that this study will be incredibly helpful to that end. I think many Christians uh, and many in churches today uh, are very uncomfortable with the Old Testament and for that purpose, or, or for that reason rather, many are very unfamiliar with the Old Testament. And I think it would be a safe estimate that broadly speaking, if we were to examine our church experiences, the predominant teaching that we've heard uh, in the church, from the church, has been from the New Testament. And a large portion of the Old Testament has been neglected. It's not been dealt with. It's not been touched. And I think the purpose or the reason for that rather is that many Christians, we don't know what to do with the Old Testament. How do we handle these 39 books? I mean, it is in fact the vast majority of the Bible as a whole. So we don't know what to do with it. And I hope as we go through this study, that will change for you if that's the case in your uh, spiritual journey. We can understand why the New Testament is incredibly appealing. I'm not saying that we should pit one against the other, not at all. Uh, you'll hear me in a moment argue that the exact opposite should happen. We should instead uh, have a continuity between the two. There should be a connection uh, between the Old and the New Testament. But we're very comfortable with the New Testament, right? I mean, it is, after all, clearly about Jesus. It has the Gospels. It has a culture and a context that we're, we're much more familiar with. Uh, we, we understand some of the things that Paul is writing about uh, from our historical studies on his missionary journeys. We, we understand the church. I mean, after all, we are the church of Jesus Christ today as well. So we can relate to those things uh, a lot easier than what we can relate to in the Old Testament many times. But I think we're also put off by the Old Testament because um, a couple of, of generations ago, the Old Testament was really under attack from scholarship and academia, sometimes even within seminaries. And uh, what's in those areas eventually always trickles down, um, just uh, from a personal experience standpoint. Uh, when we went to seminary at Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, um, Southeastern had, had been there since I think about 1950, uh, maybe mid-50s or late-50s, uh, the seminary campus is actually the old, original campus of Wake Forest University. Uh, just a simple, you know, trivia fact for you here. Wake Forest University is not in Wake Forest, North Carolina, okay? 
Wake Forest University is in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. The tobacco families wanted the university closer to them, and so they paid for the university to go to Winston-Salem, the, the tobacco family kind of headquarters, and they moved them there. Well, Southern Baptist said, hey, we got a great college campus right here. We should have that and do something with it. And a la Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary was born, and that's where we wind up going. But in the 70s, late 80s, and even stretching into the early 90s, if you're familiar with the history of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, there was a big battle for the Bible. Uh, higher critical uh, influence and in scholarship had crept into some of the seminaries and into some of the higher levels of, of thinking. And uh, it was eroding the view of biblical inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture. And uh, it was really had a foothold in all of the Southern Baptist theological seminaries. And this was taught in classrooms. Well, here's what ultimately happens. The guys sitting in those classrooms go out and begin to pastor churches, and many of them are pastoring churches in the near vicinity of those seminaries. And it was amazing to me being there uh, in the late uh, 2000s, 2007, 2008, to still see the lingering effects of the teachings, false teachings, of an improper understanding of the Old Testament that had been taught and passed down and then dispersed uh, and, and kind of diffused among churches in that area, still lingering. It was amazing to me to see the, the liberal-leaning views in a lot of churches right there in a seminary now that is uh, teaching biblical truth, that is teaching the inerrancy of Scripture, the infallibility, infallibility of Scripture. So let me bring this back to where we're at now. So from all of that... As that took place, as that shaped things in our convention for a couple of years, even a couple of decades, uh, with the question coming of, is the God of the Old Testament the same God of the New Testament? Can we really believe these Old Testament teachings and writings and really anything supernatural in Scripture? It begins to erode confidence in some of the Scriptures that they hold. And especially the Old Testaments, again, because of that distance that we have between them. Now, I share that with you, uh, not because I just want to give you a historical lesson, but to remind you as well that the old tricks of the devil really never go away. He just likes to repackage them. And a few years ago, you had a very prominent uh, pastor in the Atlanta area, Andy Stanley, and one of his sermons say very clearly, very plainly, and went on the record several times thereafter to reinforce his take that we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. So we can begin to understand why there's all of this struggle with the Old Testament some. But tonight, I hope that we can understand the correct way to read the Old Testament, the healthy way to read it. For many of us, when we've heard sermons from the Old Testament, they're predominantly moralistic in their approach. That is, they simply call their listeners to follow a pattern uh, presented in the text to be like this person or to avoid a problem that's in the text from the Old Testament. These are simply stories that we can look to and learn from. And, and let me be clear, I think that's certainly there in the Old Testament. I'm not saying we shouldn't draw that out of the passages that we read so often. We can and should learn from the examples that it puts before us. The Bible's clear about this. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have the uh, Hall of Fame of Faith, and it's those Old Testament saints. We see the example of their faith, and we should learn from that. Absolutely. And Paul says as well in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, that these were given as an example 
for us to learn from, specifically the mistakes that they had made. But the Old Testament's got to be a whole lot more than just some stories that we look at to tell us how we should live our lives and be good people and do good things and not bad things. Because the truth is, if that's all we're getting out of the Old Testament, that's a sermon that could be preached in any synagogue on any Sabbath. And that's a sermon that could be preached by any Muslim. But what we believe is entirely distinct and different than that, isn't it? Um, One preacher, I think it's maybe even the title of a book that he wrote, uh, wrote a book on this very thing. He, he, He titled it, Your Old Testament Sermon Needs to Get Saved. So, If we preach the Old Testament, if we teach the Old Testament, if we see and read the Old Testament, but we don't see Christ in it, we're not reading it, teaching it, seeing it correctly. It just becomes a moralistic example, a pattern to follow after. The Old Testament's more than that, more than that. I think we have this understanding of the Old Testament because in some minds within the church, Christians have this false assumption that people in the Old Testament were saved differently than people in the New Testament. I'll never forget, I was in seminary, uh, sitting down for a class one night, and one of my dear uh, friends, still a friend to this day, um, he's pastoring in Florida, uh, man, just a, a great, great preacher and uh, exciting to see God do great things with him and his ministry. Um, we were sitting there talking before class began, or it may have been at the break of one of the classes, and uh, he, he said, you know, we were talking about the Old Testament, and it might have even been our preaching class, I can't remember exactly, but I remember the conversation because he said, you know, it, it wasn't until just a few years ago, and by a few years, you know, I don't think he meant one or two, but, you know, um, a couple at least, Three, four, five, six, ten, twenty, I don't know, somewhere in that ballpark. He said that, I, you know, it wasn't but just till a few years ago that, that I realized, you know, people in the Old Testament are saved the same way people in the New Testament are. There's not two modes or methods of obtaining salvation. But I think a lot of times in the church we had this idea that, oh, people in the Old Testament went about it differently than what we do in the New Testament. No. There's but one gospel. There's but one means of justification, and that is through Jesus Christ. Those in the Old Testament are saved and reconciled to God the same way as believers in the New Testament, and anyone who is saved in our day, through faith in Christ alone. Let me give you another verse in John. John 8, verse 56 John 8, 56. This is Jesus, again, caught up in conversation with his religious opponents. And the conversation has turned to Abraham. That was where uh, the Jewish people, uh, they, they just really prided themselves. that They were descendants of Abraham. And Jesus is arguing that, look, your physical descendancy, your lineage from Abraham doesn't garner you anything in the standing before God. We're not saved by a descendancy. 
And so Jesus is caught up in that conversation. Listen to what he says. Listen to what he says in John 8, 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. This is what Jesus said about Abraham. Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. What day? The day of Jesus. The day of the Messiah. The day of the one who would come to take away the sin of the world. And Jesus goes on to say, not only did he rejoice that he would see it, he saw it and was glad. How did Abraham see the day of Jesus? I don't know that he necessarily had some far vision into the future. I think what Jesus is getting at here is that he saw it by faith. By faith, the Hebrew writer says, Abraham, please God. By faith, Paul says in Romans 4, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham understood by faith the promise that was given in Genesis 3.15. And the preaching of the sacrifices. He, he understood uh, what God was doing and what was coming. And by faith, he saw the day of the Messiah as the one who would ultimately take away his sin. And he was glad for that. And by his faith in that promise, in that person, it was accounted to him as righteousness. So it wasn't by any work. It wasn't by any act that Abraham performed that he was saved or reconciled no it was by his faith by faith and what we see in the old testament is that those who place faith in the promise coming of the messiah maybe not understanding it in the fullness that we have now with the completion of scripture with the understanding of the ministry of of christ here upon this earth but what had been revealed to them by faith they believed and by faith they were saved So we've got to learn to be like Abraham. We've got to learn what Jesus is telling us here in John 5. We must see the gospel in the Old Testament. It's there. It's there. And as we learn to see the gospel in the Old Testament, to understand it correctly, it'll keep us out of the ditch of moralism. Just seeing how we can be better people. How we can be good people, nice people. Do these things and everybody will like you. Again, nothing wrong with examples to look at and to learn from. But I would remind you that when we read the stories of the Old Testament, when we see these saints that are presented to us, they are not the ultimate hero. The really pressing point of the Old Testament in all of Scripture is not that we would necessarily be more like David, and not that we would necessarily be more like Job, or Abraham, or Joseph, or any other individual in the Old Testament. The work of the gospel is to what? Conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. The aim of Scripture is that we would look more and more and more like Jesus. And so as these individuals, and as their stories, and as their actions point us to look to Jesus more, we follow them. But our aim is not to look like them. Our aim is to look like Jesus. And to look like Jesus, we must see the gospel in the Old Testament. It'll help us to avoid moralism. It'll keep us from legalism. Again, much of the Old Testament is steeped, understandably so, in the law of God. 
And if we're not careful, we can think that God is saying, do this, and then you get this. Keep this, and then you're good. But Paul reminds us that the purpose of the law, one of its primary purposes, is to show us our inability to measure up to God's standard. So when we learn to read the Old Testament correctly, to see Jesus in it, to see that it is the Old Testament scriptures that bear witness about him, then we're reading it right. We're reading it right. So why this study on seeing Christ in the Old Testament? So that we can read the Old Testament correctly. I've got two more points, but they're the short ones, okay? Because they tie together. Number two, I want us to search for Christ in the Old Testament so that we can see his glory. So that we can see his glory. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians three. I'm going to start reading in verse twelve, but it's verse eighteen that I really want you to, to take note of. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, what is that? The Old Testament. When they read the Old Testament Scriptures, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Don't miss that right there. When they read the Old Covenant, it's as if they're reading it through a veil. A separation's there. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Only through Christ can we understand it correctly. Only through Christ do we get its full meaning. He goes on and says in verse 15, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all... Listen to this. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Man, we could probably spend a whole night just on that passage. But Paul here helps us to understand how it is we should read the Old Testament. That if Christ is in our hearts. That veil has been removed. The Spirit of the Lord is operating. And we with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this, he says, comes from the Lord who is Spirit. Let me, let me unpack this kind of quick for us. Verse 18. How does transformation happen in your life as a believer? How do you grow as a believer? How does change come about in your life as a believer? 
How are you made into the image of Jesus as a believer? How does that happen? Well, there's a lot of, a lot of things that God can use, but the most important, I would argue, the primary means that he uses is for us to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. It's what Paul says. We are transformed into the same image. What image? The image of Jesus Christ. From one degree of glory to another. We are moved in transformation from one degree of glory to another. How? By beholding the glory of the Lord. How does change happen in your life as a believer? How do you grow as a believer? How do you go deeper as a believer? It's not trying harder. It's not trying to invent new ways or new things. The primary means and method of growing as a child of God is, is being transformed in your life is to look at the glory of Jesus. To gaze upon Him. To behold His glory. And Paul says, then you're transformed from one image of glory to another. That's why you hear me pray every Sunday as we open the Word. God, open our eyes that we would see. I know I can't package that up and sell it to churches. I know I can't come up with a program that sounds really nifty and really cool that, you know, we're going to have gazing on the glory Sunday. I mean, it just doesn't work like that. So it's not really catchy in our church culture today. But I'm telling you, if you ever get a taste of it, if you ever get a glimpse of it, if you ever gaze upon the glory of Jesus Christ, you'll never be the same. Why do you think Moses prayed in Exodus, show me your glory? Because if you get a glimpse of his glory, life's never the same for you. It transforms you. Well, where do we best behold the glory of Jesus at? In Scripture. And as we look for Jesus in Scripture, as we look for the glory of His gospel in the Scripture, man, our lives are transformed. Our hearts are enlarged. Our joy is deepened. Our love for Him increases. You, you want to put off sin in your life. Yes, you fight against it. Yes, there's practical steps that you can take. But the ultimate antidote of fighting against sin is a deeper love for Jesus. And how do you develop a deeper love for Jesus? You've got to see his glory. You've got to get a glimpse of who he is and what he has done and, and how he has done it. And your heart then just ruptures with a love for him. Oh. As we think about the Old Testament and looking for Christ in it, what I hope that we will discover is that it will enlarge our view of the gospel It'll give us a more robust understanding of, of Jesus and what he has done for us. We'll see his glory and our lives will never be the same. Now, you get a little bit extra with that one, okay? Because Paul tells us at the end of verse 18 that this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So this operation of beholding the glory of Jesus Christ and being transformed, it comes through the working of the Holy Spirit. All right? Who is the divine author of Scripture? 
It's the easy answer. The Holy Spirit. Peter teaches us that. Holy men of old were carried along by the Spirit of God. Paul teaches us that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's the breath of God. So the Holy Spirit is the divine author of Scripture giving us the Word of God. And because the Scripture is, uh, the, the Holy Spirit is the divine author of Scripture, as we seek His help to understand it, His best help comes when we read it the way that He has given it to us. And the way that He has given us Scripture, the purpose for which He has given us Scripture, and even the purpose of His ministry, is what? To show us Christ. To show us Christ. All of Scripture is laid before us so that we may see Jesus and His glory. So as we go through this study, I hope that you'll discover ways that you can get a glimpse of the glory of Christ in the Old Testament. And as you do so, I hope your love for Him grows deeper than ever before. That's what excites me. Show me Jesus. Show me Jesus, and that's enough. Show me Jesus, and that'll satisfy my soul like nothing else can do show me jesus see his glory and then third i want us to see christ in the old testament because it helps us with our evangelism it helps us with our evangelism go to luke 24 Luke 24, verse 13, this is the post-resurrection of Christ as he appeared on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples. Verse 13, that very day two of them, that's Easter Sunday, of course, that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near, um, drew near and met with them and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these uh, days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a, mighty, a man who was a, a prophet, mighty, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those were with us. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Prophets, Old Testament prophets. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now listen to verse 27. 
and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures. That's all parts of the Old Testament. Prophets, law, writings. Jesus interpreted to to them the things concerning himself. From the Old Testament, Jesus preached about himself. I've always said, if I could have a time machine, that may be the one message I would want to go back and hear in history. Could you imagine the living word expounding the written word about the glories of the Messiah, of Christ, of Jesus, and what he has done? Jesus is saying, it's about me. These scriptures, they bear witness to me, and in me you have life. So let's keep going. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. I'd have loved to have known like, what was going through their minds in that moment. And they said to each other, did not our own hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures? He opened the scriptures and what did he do? He showed them Christ. He showed them himself. And what did they say? Did our hearts not burn? I'm telling you, you see the glory of Christ. You get a glimpse of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ and your heart burns within you. Now look at what they did in verse 33. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. They had to go tell somebody. They'd seen him. They'd gotten a glimpse of his glory. And they had to share it. Oh, my hope as we learn to see the glories of Christ and his gospel in the Old Testament is that our hearts will burn within us, yes, but that, that will then propel us to go and to share a vision of that glory with others. To go and to tell others about Jesus Christ and what he has done. That their hearts may burn within them as well. So we'll start next Wednesday working our way through some particular ways that we see Christ in the Old Testament, that we can get a glimpse of his glory and pray that our hearts will burn in response. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight. Thank you for this opportunity to come together with brothers and sisters in Christ and to be encouraged in fellowship, to be encouraged by your word. And Lord, we pray and ask that, um, Lord, as we go through this study, that your spirit would be our teacher, that he would open our eyes, that we would see your glory and our hearts would burn within us. And Father, that we would be faithful to share what we see with others. For these who are before me, I pray that they would go with a joy in Jesus full, filled with your spirit, yielded to your ways. And Lord, if it's your will that we should gather this upcoming Lord's Day, let us come.
with eager expectation to gaze upon your glory, that we would never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen.